destino para ti lo que viniera de ti tu pueblo Welcome to the Inside the Journey podcast. This is episode number 47 for Sunday, April 6, 2014. I'm Nelson DeWitt. And I am John Younger. Coming in nice and loud. <laughs> and we are the team behind the upcoming documentary film, Identifying Nelson, Buscando a Roberto. To learn more about the film and get updates, head on over to inbarfilm.com. So, John... I am in L.A. right now. When this is published, correct. <laughs> yes. No, not yet. But I, I'm, I'm going to L.A. this weekend and uh, this week, I guess. And uh, so I'll be seeing you. And, and Yeah, was, looking forward to it. Yeah. In case, for those of you who don't know, I, uh, I'm in Boston and John is in L.A. So all of the podcasts and most of the work that we do are, are done, you know, um, via Skype or GoToMeeting in this case. And uh, yeah, so we, we are on different coasts. Get ready for some earthquakes. I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was in one uh, in, in Panama that um, that was a 6.1. So. Wow. Anyway, this week, I thought we would kind of do a follow-up episode to the discussion that that John and I had on the English version of last week's podcast. And we kind of talked a little bit about the elections, sorry, the elections in El Salvador that just happened. And this week I kind of wanted to talk about what could those elections mean for the disappeared and more specifically, what could the election of Sanchez Serin, who is now the uh, incumbent president, mean for the amnesty laws that are in place. And we'll go into talking about what those laws are and, uh, you know, f fill in some of the details. But that's that's the big picture of, uh, of what we'll be talking about today. So, John, maybe it would be good to kind of start with the amnesty laws and why this has been such an important issue, uh, not just for the disappeared, but I think for El Salvador as a whole. In 1993, there was an amnesty law passed as part of the peace accords that ended the war. And this said that basically combatants on both sides, the FMLN and the Salvadoran army, <clears throat> excuse me, could not be prosecuted for things that happened during the war. And this is still in place today, all these years later. The argument for is that it promotes stability because people don't have an interest in trying to you know keep fighting because they could be prosecuted for something that they did previously the argument against is that this is a country that has a weak judiciary and i think that something like 90% of all murders don't get solved and also there are a lot of old crimes and and uh, still, you know, disappeared people, the, and there's no legal leverage to compel people to testify and give answers as to what happened and and where they are, and and so there you there you have it in broad Short strokes. Form. Yeah. Yes. So basically, for uh, someone like Suyapa Cruz, who we 
interviewed in the documentary film, she is still looking for her uh, two sisters that were taken during the war. And one way to bring a resolution to that case might be to open up the military records. And because there is this amnesty law, the military records have not been opened. And as a result, Suyapa and, and others like her are still waiting to hear, still waiting to find out what happened to their loved ones. So as you point out, there are these two sides, one which says, you know, these these things happened 20 years ago. Let's not stir, uh, you know, let's not go opening old wounds. And the other that's side... The, that's the phrase that always gets used. Let's not open old wounds as if the wounds are not still there. Right. And and on the other side, you have uh, Suyapa, who, you know, when, when we did that interview, which you will get to see in the film, uh, you can see how... Um, how real it is for her. And, and as you point out that those memories, even though they happened about 30 years ago, they're still for her, they're like, they, they happened yesterday. So it's not something that you can just kind of uh, put a bandaid on and, and forget about, you know, and, and actually that this is a bit of a tangent, but I was watching um, Rachel Maddow, who was on John Stewart a couple of weeks ago, and she had this great, saying, uh, you know, she did this film, a uh, documentary film about the war in Iraq and why we went to war. And, and that was the the title of the film, I believe. But what she said on the, on the um, John Stewart show, which I think is relevant here, is she said, the reason Iraq still looms over what we do is because it is kind of the original sin of the 21st century. Until we reckon with history, and understand why we did it, we're never going to escape that. And we owe it to ourselves to get past that. And this made me think of El Salvador, where there's never been this reckoning of, of the past uh, to the extent that I, I think you can move past it as a country, because there's always two sides that, um, you know, one side that, that still feels the wounds and one side that wants to sweep it all under the rug, so to speak. Well, and, and also... Um, and we've learned some of this through doing the podcast. To an extent, the FMLN is also complicit in in sweeping the past under the rug. Um, you know, the party of the former guerrillas. The um, uh, it was fascinating in the interview with Ralph Sprinkles that we did a while back that he talked about how the issue of the disappeared children was not something anybody wanted to address. Um, and in part, while, while the Truth Commission report that was done after the war um, basically indicts the government in 85 to 90 percent of the, the atrocities and killings that happened, still there's 15 percent, there are 10 to 15 percent, I believe, that they, um, they say were, were by the FMLN, and, and those people would also be vulnerable to prosecution. And so... So some of the stuff that happened, you know, they, they also don't want uncovered. So there's, there's, these, these are not uh, co-equal sides. There's not a equivalence. However, there's a bigger dynamic at play also, or a more nuanced dynamic that's, that's mm. causing some of this, you know. 
you know what I, I had this thought the the other night, and of course I was half asleep when it when it happened, so I don't know how accurate it is. But <laughs> my my thought was that we we talked last week about uh, Mauricio Funes, the the now former president of El Salvador, and how he ended up being more of a, a centrist, and how he didn't overturn amnesty, how he didn't do some of the things that the base uh, the the base of his party wanted him to as you pointed out and one thing that that occurred to me was maybe some of that was on purpose and and what i mean is that uh, when we talked about chile and when we watched the the documentary about chile and everything that happened there you had this leftist leader come in and he he had massive socialist changes that he put into place. You're talking about in the 70s? Yes, uh, before Pinochet. Mm-hmm. The the Salvador Allende. Salvador also in uh, Salvador. Um, mm-hmm. Salvador Allende. Yes, he came in and had sweeping reforms that that may have been good for the country, but it was such a dramatic change that. It it divided the country, and it sort of opened the way for this this military coup. And so my thought was maybe Funes played it safe in order to sort of retain the presidency, so that you know if you change things too much too quickly, then it it splits the country in half, and it hurts the party's chances of winning the presidency again. Yeah, it's certainly a, a possibility. I, I don't feel qualified to judge how far he did or didn't go just because I don't see the Salvador news every day. And uh, I know that a lot of people were really unhappy with him, right? Yeah. But uh, so I... It's just a tough one. Like I, I guess I don't, I don't feel qualified to. Uh, I can describe some of it, just like you know you did, but I just don't know. I, yeah. I don't know if I have. Well, I, I think we should also say for for this episode. There's in also a lot of reason to criticize him. Right? Yes. Yeah. I, I absolutely agree. And well, I guess we should say for this episode in particular that we are doing a bit of speculation. In other words. John and I don't live in El Salvador. We don't watch the news, as you pointed out, and we are sort of, uh, uh, we are sort of uh, predicting. We keep up with it. It's just yeah. that, you know, on a daily basis, my conversations with most people isn't. Oh, how do you feel about that? You <laughs> know, right? Um, I, yeah. I don't have the same backboards I do to how I feel about, you know, Obamacare and the Republican response to it because I have I could confidently weigh in with strong opinions on that. <laughs> yeah. Right, so it it it's not our country. We we can't speak for sure. So we are sort of projecting, and we are we are speculating a little bit. Well, we can topic. certainly show the importance of the issues at play. It's just uh, we can draw out what's happening. I just I I don't I don't think I can confidently say what what I think of Funes. You know? Sure. Uh, so. Speaking of the issues at play, the president-elect, 
is a man named Salvador Sanchez Seren, who was a FMLN guerrilla uh, back in the 80s. And now he has um, won the presidency. And one thing we were talking about is what does this mean for the amnesty loss that we talked about in the beginning? Would he be the type of person to overturn those and uh, and move the the debate about the atro- or move the conversation of about the atrocities of war along? And will he have the power to do it, even if yeah. he is, even if he wants to? And I think there's there's a couple of things to know about this, which is he's on record as saying that those laws are no longer convenient for the country. I think he said that in 2013. So the indication was that he wanted to get rid of them, uh, the amnesty laws. And I think there's more recent information that he's backing off of that stance and that he's, he said it's there's two articles we can include links to. Um, one is Christian Science Monitor, and another is the National Catholic Reporter. And they both do very good articles about this. And the second one talks about how he's more, because he may not have votes in the Legislative Assembly, and he won the election um, by such a small margin, it was like 6,000 votes in a country of 6 million people, that he he may not have the power to affect this, at least at, at this point. So he said it, it's uh, maybe something for the courts. Yeah. But it'll be, it'll be interesting to see if he, you know, what the, what approach he takes and what effect it has on the long term and what it mm-hmm. means for the disappeared and their families. Are they going to be, you know, if he does, uh, if he does keep his promise and and try and overturn the amnesty laws, I think that opens the way for a lot of cases, both against the military and people who committed crimes, but also the resolution of cases such as Suyapa. And there's no guarantee that that opening the military records will solve all these cases. It's well, that's sort of its own issue. I mean, you could open the military records. And still have amnesty, right? I mean, right. you probably wouldn't because what people would read about would so outrage them. Um, maybe that's the fear: is that if you open the records, there's going to be a groundswell of public opinion against amnesty. Alongside the amnesty issue, there there are still there's other tracks of legal avenues being pursued. Some are international, and some are internal. Even though there's this amnesty law, I think that there there is a case recently where the Supreme Court of the country has gone ahead with some proceedings about a particular massacre. And I, I think they have, even with the amnesty law, they have the jurisdiction to do this. They've opened the military records. They've opened the military records for that specific incident, I believe. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it says they've begun an investigation. This Catholic reporter article says uh, they've begun an investigation into the massacre of El Mazote, where 900 men, women, and children were killed by the Salvadoran troops 
armed, trained, and advised by the U.S. Army. So that was a massacre that was three times as similar in nature to My Lai in some ways in Vietnam, where a whole town was massacred, men, women, and children, and uh, except it's three times the size. And that was literally like U.S. arms were flown into an airport near this town in the province of, or the Department of Morazan, and, you know, they literally, you can, you can read a great article by Mark Danner that was in the New Yorker, you know, 15 years ago, but it took up, it's one of the few articles that took up the whole magazine, that issue, and uh, these weapons went into the airport, the Salvadorans drive them out of the airport into this town, and two days later they're using them to, to do this horrible thing. And it's, it's probably, I don't know how you quantify this, but the worst thing that happened during the war. Yeah. And, and I guess we should point out, too, that there is a lot of opposition. So, I mean, we, we, we've talked about it a little bit, but uh, I guess the, the best demonstration of the, the opposition would be in the election and the way that the Arena Party has really fought tooth and nail to overturn what by all accounts has been a fair and, and just election. They um, even invoked the, the times of the war in, so, in a lot of ways by when when their candidate lost, he called for the army to intervene and overturn the result, yeah. um, which is a scary prospect. So, but the main point being that there is there are people who do not want to see uh, the the military records opened, the amnesty laws overturned, and even the presidency, uh, you know, given back to the FMLN. So, you know, it it is not an easy thing to, uh, you know overturn or you know it is not an easy thing to enact these changes all at once so you know mm-hmm. it, it, it's hard to say if part of the reason that it's taken so long is that uh you know that dynamic of these two opposing forces or if it's or if it's just the uh you know the, the candidates then backpedaling on on what they promised yeah it's hard from even I mean I would imagine even in the even in El Salvador it's people I'm sure have strong opinions but it's hard to see it until you get a, a little time from it right mm. I mean history will look back and and have there'll be more information but yeah it is it is hard to tell if there's a greater strategy at play or yeah so I guess time will tell. As we said earlier, this is a bit of speculation on our part, but I, I think it's an important issue to talk about, especially you know going forward and looking towards the future of of uh, the disappeared and the human rights violations that took place in El Salvador during the war, and especially for our work. You know, where does this lead us in the future? And um, I guess we will find out. Yeah, what I mean, what do you think personally? I mean, your 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 case, your story, your mother, 
there's still a lot unresolved to it that that more transparency and uh, people being in legal limbo would would benefit, right? Yeah. What? How does it make you feel about it? I'm I'm springing that on you. Yeah. I I you know I'll go back to the Rachel Maddow quote and and I feel like. Um, as a country, the only way to move past it is to to have a discussion about it, to to open to openly look and talk about what happened. And mm-hmm. perhaps that's a little bit impersonal, but no, you know. But but at the same time, you know, I I have said this before that I don't necessarily feel a. a a strong connection with El Salvador. And that was one of the, the themes in, in the film is that it took me a while to even feel somewhat connected. So I, I, but what I see is these two sides that are constantly going back and forth about the war and what happened or what didn't happen. And as, as this quote points out, the only way to, move past that is to is to look at it and have an open conversation about what happened and that i think is very hard for people to do on a large scale so Mm -hmm. i hope that the country of el salvador can can get there uh, for my family's sake for you know for the the betterment of the country Uh, but we will see Okay. I'd also add, I think, and I think it's something that's interesting about your story and important about it is, is I totally agree with Rachel Maddow and and your, you know, your bringing up her point about as a country, if they can't deal with this core issue, I would say, how can you deal with anything, right? Yeah, I mean, if you if you're if you're sort of on a faulty foundation, then as a result, you know, there's 90% of murders that are, you know, there's legal impunity in this country, and when when that happens, society starts has one of the largest murder rates in the world, and society starts to fall apart. I mean, it, it's a hard place; it, it can be a hard place to live for that reason, right? It was wonderful. I, I loved being there, but but there's a lot of hard realities that people face there. And I would wrap that around to say I think that what's important and interesting about your story also is the question, and I think it's a really important one, of how much has the U.S. faced as to what their participation in this was as well. Because I think the two are inextricably linked. The impunity in El Salvador, and then the role of of the U.S. and some of the things that happened. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's a great point and a great segue for other things that we hope to accomplish in uh, in the future. But that is all the time we have this week. Uh, John and I will be back next week, as always. And thank you so much for listening. Bye-bye.